Lord, uh, we come before you this morning so grateful. God, we pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would uh, move in our hearts, God, that we would be able to identify with this text, that we'd be challenged by it. Lord, uh, such an amazing experience uh, um, these people got to experience in, in washing, watching you um, walking triumphantly uh, into Jerusalem, um, declaring really who you are, um, but it wasn't what they expected. God, so I pray, uh, Lord, if we have false expectations about who you are and what your will is for our lives, uh, Lord, I pray that you would correct us and we would know who you are, and we would choose to be people that worship you in spirit and truth. So I pray that your spirit would move in power, Lord, that you would convict us and encourage us and change us. In your name, amen. All right, Um, so as we were discussing last week, we finished out Matthew chapter 20. This week, we're uh, entering into the final week of the Lord's life here on earth. When you look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you add up all the chapters in the Gospels, and you look specifically at the last week of Christ, it's about a third of the Gospel chapters are about the last week of Jesus Christ. Meaning, Jesus, we see from when he was born, Matthew talks about it, Luke talks about it, right? All the way up through his ministry, 33 years of life. And the gospel writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they saw fit to focus on that last week. So this last week of the Lord's life is 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 crucial, it's important, and I think there's something to that and what the Lord wants to communicate to us. So, for the rest of our series, uh, in Matthew 28, we'll get into the resurrection, but um, I don't know how many months it's going to take us to get through all this, but we're going to be focusing on the last week of Jesus Christ, primarily, obviously, in the book of Matthew as we've been going through, but um, like we usually do, I'll pull some references from the other gospels so that we can get kind of the big picture in what's going on. So, let me read This section will be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, uh, so we can get the big picture and then we'll break it down. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So we see Jesus, he's entering into Jerusalem and he's obviously warmly welcomed and this great multitude begins to worship him, begins to praise him, but they're praising him with a false idea, a false concept. See, they believe that Jesus is coming into town to to, to basically take out the Romans that he might rule like David did. He would be this great 
uh, uh, king, if you will, this great warrior. He would take over the Roman rule and Jerusalem could become what it once was back in uh, David's era. So they expect him to come like this specific type of king, this specific type of Messiah, but he doesn't come in the way in which they think. See, they have ulterior motives and why they're praising him and why they're worshiping him. They're not worshiping him in spirit and in truth because this same group, many of them, will be part of the same group that yell, crucify him, crucify him. So we see here these people, they're worshiping the Lord for perhaps what they think he's going to do, perhaps what they think they're going to gain from him, but they're not worshiping him for who he truly is. Which is why I titled this teaching, Why Do You Praise Him? Why do you praise him? See, the people, they were praising him with a false agenda, a false idea, ulterior motives, but their hearts weren't sincere as time would reveal. But we can fall into this too. See, we can worship the Lord or praise God or seek him for what we think he's going to do for us. I'll seek the Lord in prayer. I'll be persistent in this specific prayer because I think I'll answer it if I'm persistent enough. Now, absolutely, we're called to be persistent in prayer, but we got to check our motives and why we're seeking the Lord. I'm going to seek him because I think he's going to do this, or I'm going to seek him in hopes that he'll do this certain thing. But when the Lord doesn't do what you think he's going to do, do you stop seeking him? Do you stop praising him? Do you stop worshiping him? See, the heart behind our praise is more important than the praise itself. We can have false praise with a false heart, and not be sincere. But the Lord, we know that he's looking at the heart behind our praise. Why are we truly praising him? Why are we worshiping him? Why are we following him? Let's dive in. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem... So we see Jesus, he's coming into Jerusalem. It's interesting because he just said in the last chapter, Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, I'll read it for you. The Lord knew what he was getting into. It says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So Jesus, he's entering into Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen to him. It's not going to be a good time, right? He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be killed. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be crucified. So he knows what to expect. Now, Jesus, he's entered into Jerusalem several times. See, his ministry was three years and we know that it was a, a, a commandment that the men in Israel had to come up to Jerusalem for three out of the seven main feasts out of the year. Okay, so they'd have to come up to Jerusalem for these feasts. Jesus, he's obedient. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. So this is something that he did. This was his custom. He would come up to Jerusalem for these specific feasts because he had to fulfill the law. So Jesus, he's been in Jerusalem, we don't even know how many times, quite a few times. But this time is different. See, before when Jesus would come up to Jerusalem, he was very secretive. Okay, He was very secretive. He didn't want the scribes and Pharisees to really know that he was there. He wasn't trying to cause a lot of attention. Why? Because he says, says things like this. My hour has not yet come. 
And he says this all throughout the Gospels until this time period. Why? Because the hour that he was referring to was the cross, okay? He was on the cross for more than an hour, but he was referring to the hour of the cross, the hour that he would be glorified and the Father would be glorified through the Son. That time is coming. It's coming shortly. It's coming quickly. It's coming this Friday. This time, Jesus, he wasn't being secretive. In John chapter 7, we see Jesus have this encounter with his brothers and his brothers. Though they don't realize, though they don't believe he's the Messiah, they say, Jesus, when are you going to come with us to the Feast of Tabernacles? Why were they saying this? Well, they knew he had a following. Multitudes were following their brother left and right, and they wanted to catch on, catch on to the fame a little bit. They wanted a little attention too. Hey, maybe we can use our brother to get some attention, maybe make some friends, maybe we'll be famous like he was. Kind of dragging on his coattails, if you will. But Jesus, he says, hey, it's not my time right now. You got the wrong idea. That's not why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. It's not for my glory. It's for the glory of my heavenly father. So Jesus, in secret, later on, he ends up going to the Feast of Tabernacles and he ends up teaching and he ends up obviously getting a lot of attention because how can the son of God not get attention? Regardless, we see Jesus was being secretive because he knew if he got too much attention, it was only a matter of time before the scribes and Pharisees would have him killed. So Jesus, he's not hiding anymore. He's entering into Jerusalem saying, this is who I am and this is who I came to be. I am your king. I am your God. I am your ruler. You choose whether you desire to submit to that authority or not. Jesus, that's what he's claiming as he's entering into Jerusalem. Now they came to Bethphage. Now it's important to note in a couple of weeks, Bethphage and uh, uh, Bethany were places where figs grew abundantly. Okay, we're going to see Jesus curse a fig tree later, not next Sunday, the Sunday after that. So just take a note, if you will, if you are taking notes, these places are important. In Matthew chapter 21, picking it up in verse 2, it says this, saying to them, going into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus sends two of his disciples to the village to grab this colt. And the interesting thing about this is that Jesus was able to send them because he knew that cult would be waiting for him. He knew this was going to happen. In fact, he planned this out before the foundations of the earth. He could tell his disciples to do this thing because he had foresight. He knew what was going to happen. See, Jesus, he has all knowledge and that is a reason that we should praise him. Point number one, praise him because he is all-knowing. Praise him because he was all-knowing. See, Jesus knew every intricate detail that was to be a part of this plan and God, his father, bringing redemption to the world. He had this cult there for a purpose. He knew this cult would be there for a purpose. Look at verse four. It says this, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. So this prophecy in verse five is specifically from Zechariah chapter nine. 
But this event wasn't just prophesied by Zechariah. This event was prophesied by many of the prophets. God was telling these men what was going to happen in those final days when Jesus Christ would enter into Jerusalem. In fact, God the Father even revealed a timeline when these events would actually happen. If you would with me in Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, try to follow me if you haven't heard this before. If you have, great, it's still awesome. Daniel chapter 9, we see um, this timeline that's laid out, the Lord delivering this prophecy uh, to Daniel. And there's a lot here, um, all the way from Jerusalem being rebuilt to the Messiah coming to the tribulation and the Antichrist coming. There's a ton of stuff here, but I want to focus on one portion of the timeline. If you would with me in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, it says 70 weeks are determined for you. Now, this is important to note that word week in the Hebrew is the word Shabua. Okay. It's S H A B U A. Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean a week. What it actually means is an increment of seven. Okay, so this is 70 increments of seven years. If you total that up, what's 70 times seven? 490, okay? 70 times seven is 490. I'm just making sure you're following. (laughs) So 490 years, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about a timeline of 490 years, okay? So look with me, 24, verse 24, for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make re- reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. What do those words describe? What are they reminding you of? The gospel in general, right? There's some specifics, but look at verse 25. Now there, know therefore and understand from that the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, what was that? You remember a man named Nehemiah, yeah? He was sent to go what? Rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Yeah, so from the going forth of that command for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild and restore Jerusalem, that's the first event, okay? Two, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? 69 weeks, okay? So that's 69 increments of seven years. That's 483 years. This is crazy. When you do the math, from when Nehemiah was called, commanded to go back and rebuild Jerusalem to the point when the prince, Messiah, came on the scene, 483 years. Literally. Like God even, he said exactly when it was going to happen. The people, their eyes should have been open. God gave them the time frame, the time frame, the timeline when all these things should happen. So it wasn't just through Zechariah. It was through other prophets that God had revealed this specific event in the life of the Messiah. If you would with me back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Okay, so this is describing uh, the event, right? Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem on a cult. Now, we got to look at history uh, in Israel to understand this a little better. Now, before Solomon's time, if someone were to ride on a donkey, usually the wealthier people had donkeys. And if someone was riding on a donkey, that was usually royalty. Okay, when Solomon ruled and reigned, he had a breed of horses, Okay, so when Solomon got all these horses from that point forward, royalty in Israel would ride on horses. Now, when that switch happened, it was the poor people. It was the peasants that had the donkeys and they would ride on donkeys. The rich people would ride on horses. Jesus, he's coming riding on a donkey. See, this doesn't just speak of the event by which the king would enter, but the character. He says he's coming to you lowly, riding on a donkey, meaning he isn't the king that you think he is. He's lowly. He's humble. He's meek. See, his kingdom, it wouldn't be one with a sword. It'd be one with love. His kingdom, it wouldn't be established by the spilling of other people's blood. It'd be established by the spilling of his blood. It's not the king that they expect in the prophets. We're trying to communicate this, trying to prepare the people for the type of king that would enter into Israel, into Jerusalem on that day. See, Jesus, he knew exactly how this was all going to play out since the beginning of time. He literally wrote the script. He wrote the script and then fulfilled it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says that, in other words, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He wrote it out. He's like the director. He's like the main actor. He's like all of it. He's doing all of it. He wrote this. He's the writer. He wrote the script and then he fulfilled exactly what he said he was going to fulfill. See, Jesus, he knew how it was going to play out. He knew every single detail. Jesus knows every single detail, not just about these events, but about the events in our lives. He knows every intricate detail about our lives, and he's intimately involved and concerned with the details of our lives. He knows the hairs on our head. Like, that's crazy. You know, he knows when a sparrow is going to fall to the ground. He knows all these things, and he cares about all these things. But if Jesus is all-knowing, why do you worry when you don't know what tomorrow holds. See, sometimes, though we know the scriptures say Jesus knows all things, we can fall into a place of anxiety, a place of fear, constantly worrying about what's going to happen next in life. What's going to happen tomorrow? But Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, if you want to write it down, he says just the opposite. Don't worry about tomorrow. You can't control those things. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You couldn't handle it if you didn't know. See, the Lord, he doesn't reveal every single detail of our lives because we'd probably fall apart if we knew all the things that were going to happen. He lets us know the things that we need to know, and he knows the rest. Is that enough that he knows it all? And we don't. Will we still trust him? Will we put our faith in him, even though we don't know everything that's going to take place in our lives? See, if you think about this, it's a blessing that we don't know our futures, okay? Why? See, if you knew what was going to happen to you five years from now, ten years from now, you would find some way to mess it up. You'd find some way to destroy it. 
So I find some way to mess up the blessings that God wants on your life. Either that or you would try to fulfill what he's called you to in your flesh. I'll give you an example. If God told me six years ago that I was going to be a pastor, I probably would have walked away from ministry. That would have terrified me. No way am I going to be a pastor. Are you serious? Like, no way I'm going to do that. Either that, either I would have been too afraid and walked away, or I would have been like, oh, that's what you're calling me to? I'm going to do everything I can to try to become a pastor, okay? And what would I have done? I would have messed it up. Why? Because I would try to get there in my flesh. I would try to fulfill God's calling in my life in my own strength, in my own power, and that would lead me to do what? Not lean on his power. But he says, hey, I'm going to give you a little bit. I'm going to give you a little encouragement here, a little encouragement there, so that you kind of have a little idea of what I'm doing. But I'm not going to give you too much because I want you to walk by faith and not by sight. Because the moment you start walking by sight, you stop depending on me. And I want you to depend on me. Only when you depend on me will you become the person that I've called you to become. But so often we get worried. What's going to happen? What's next season going to hold? What am I going to do? And the Lord's like, Dude, don't worry about it. You don't need to know. You shouldn't know. It's better that you don't know because I know. And the Lord, he knows all things. We can have comfort in that. We can have peace in that. He knows so we don't have to. Not only is Jesus all-knowing, but he's also all-powerful. In Mark chapter 11, verse 2, it says this colt that he was going to ride on, it had never been ridden, okay? Luke tells us that, or Mark tells us it never been sat on. Luke tells us that it's never been ridden. So if you know anything about training donkeys, which I don't know anything about training donkeys, I've just read about it, but basically donkeys, a colt, uh, one that hasn't been trained, there's no possible way you're riding on that thing. Okay, it is going to buck you off. It's not going to let you ride on it. A donkey, in order for it to be ridden, it has to be trained thoroughly. Jesus, he sits on this donkey. He rides this donkey and this donkey submits to the Lord. Why? Because the donkey recognizes something that many people don't, that Jesus is all powerful, that he does have all authority. See, this donkey recognized its king and he submitted to the authority of his master. He knew something that many of these people didn't. Jesus is all powerful. Point number two, praise him because he is all powerful. Praise him because he is all powerful. See, Jesus has proven his power over and over and over again. He's proven his power over man. He's proven his power over beast. He's even proven his power over death. It wasn't that long ago that he called Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus, he was dead for four days. There was no questioning. He is dead as dead can be. And Jesus, he calls him forth. He literally rises him from the dead. Why? Because Jesus has power over death. He has all this power. He has all this control. He is sovereign. But do we make him sovereign over our lives? If he is all powerful, are we giving him all power? Or are we trying to control our own lives? Are we trying to say, no, I'm all powerful over my life? Because what we're doing there is we're putting ourselves in the place of God. And let me tell you something. There's no one in this room that makes a good God. There's no person on this earth that makes a good God. We make poor gods of ourselves. Okay? If I, if I still chose to be my own God, I'd definitely be dead. Okay, at this point. See, the Lord, he wants to be our God. 
But we got to let him be our God sometimes. Sometimes we try to take control of our lives. We try, to, we try to manipulate and we try to control our circumstances or our settings. Now, of course, we have to make decisions, but sometimes we take it too far. And we don't truly surrender our will to the Lord. Our will is still our own. I said, yeah, Jesus, I know you're all powerful, but, but I don't want you to be all powerful over my life because I'm afraid what you're going to ask me to do. I'm afraid where you're going to take me. I'm afraid what you're going to tell me hey, I'm all powerful, but I'm not going to force my power on you. You got to let me be all powerful. You got to surrender your power so I can be powerful through you. See, Jesus, he proved his power. This donkey recognized the power of Jesus Christ. Many of the people in this multitude, they're not. Again, in several days, they'll end up screaming, crucify him. If we could only be more like this donkey, in all sincerity, no questions asked, just wherever you direct me, Lord, wherever you take me, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Matthew chapter 21, verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. So think about it. Think about what Jesus asked them to do. Hey, I want you to go and ask this person for a donkey. I want you to go ask them if we can borrow their donkey, if we can use their donkey. It's like the disciples don't know what's going to happen. See, the disciples chose to do what Jesus told them to do, but they were walking by faith. See, obedience always requires faith. It always requires a measure of faith. When the Lord asks us to do something, we have to choose to walk by faith and walk in obedience or just not do it at all. But it's always going to require faith. Many times we want to know exactly how things are going to play out so that we don't have to walk by faith. The disciples, they, they, they don't have that privilege. They're not in that position. This guy could have told them, no, I'm not giving you my donkey. No, I'm not. You can't have my donkey. This is my donkey. He's mine. You can't have it. And Jesus says, if he says anything to him, say, the Lord needs it, okay? That's all you can say. The Lord needs the donkey. That's all he needs to know. See, obedience, it always requires faith. It always requires at least a measure of faith. These disciples did as Jesus commanded because they trusted in his word. They trusted in what he told them that it would come to pass, that this man would give up his donkey. If you look at Matthew chapter 21, picking it back up in verse 7, it says, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Okay, this is where we get Palm Sunday from. So we see they're spreading their garments on the road. This was a symbol of loyalty. This was a symbol of promise and submission. Yes, we salute you. We're, we're submitting to your authority. Okay, now this is also a cultural thing, specifically in the Roman Empire. After a big victory or a battle was won the general or the commander or Caesar, whoever was leading that battle specifically, they would enter into the city and this is how the people would respond. You won this great victory. We're laying down our garments. We're in submission. We're laying down the palm branches. You're victorious. We submit to you as our leader. That's what the people are saying. And they're kind of right, but they're kind of wrong. What do I mean? Yes, Jesus came to declare victory. 
But the victory that he came to declare, to, to, to win, to gain, was different than the victory that they supposed, right? They believed that Jesus was going to come in and take over the Romans, that he would establish his kingdom, that Jerusalem could be what it once was. But Jesus came to be victorious over sin, over death, not to establish this earthly kingdom, but to establish his heavenly kingdom. His first coming was about the heavenly kingdom. Second coming will be about the earthly kingdom where they come together. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they're saying these names. Hosanna specifically, it means to save us now or save us, please. The people, this great multitude, they're literally crying out for salvation. But they're not crying out for eternal salvation. They're crying out once again to be saved from Roman rule. They didn't want to be occupied by the Romans. They didn't want to have to submit to their laws because the Romans took a lot of the authority of the religious leaders uh, away from the people. Like they couldn't, they couldn't do capital punishment anymore. Things like this. So they wanted to be free to be able to continue to follow the law of the Lord. So they're crying out for salvation, but they're crying out for the wrong type of salvation. They're crying to be delivered from the Romans. They're not crying out to be delivered from sin. See, they're having false expectations. They think Jesus is going to do something that he isn't. They think he's going to, to, to take over the Romans when, when he's not. And we can fall into this too. We can worship Jesus with false expectations. I'll worship you, Lord, because this is what I think you're going to do in my life. Yeah, life will get easier. Life will get better. I'll be wealthier. All these different things. And that's not necessarily true. Okay, It could happen, but that doesn't mean it will happen. But sometimes we can pursue the Lord. God, I'm going to keep seeking you for this specific thing until you answer me what I'm asking you. Okay? And until you answer me, I'm going to keep seeking you. But once you answer me, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to back off. I'm going to back off in my pursuit. And we can have this, these ulterior motives, this false agenda, because we think the Lord is going to do this specific thing when he might not. What happens if he says no? What happens if you're seeking him, pursuing him, worshiping him, because you believe that he's going to deliver you from something that he's not? That's what they're thinking here. What if Jesus says, it's not time to deliver you from that. I'm going to let you go through this trial. I'm going to let you go through this tribulation. I'm going to allow you to go through this test. It's not my will that I deliver you right now. What if that was the response that he had to say? Would you still worship him? Or do we only worship him for the blessings? Or when times are good, when times are bad, will we still worship him? See, we see a great example of this in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they just cast out this demon-possessed woman and they're enslaved because it took a lot of money away from these guys that were using this woman for prophecy and different things. Now, they're put in prison, they're scourged, they're beaten. And what happens? Paul and Silas, what do they do in prison? They worship the Lord. They're not worshiping God so that they can be delivered from prison. They're worshiping God because he's worthy to be worshiped. They're just worshiping him because they love him. They're not expecting him to do what he ends up doing. But what does he end up doing? He ends up delivering him, right? Chains are broken. The prison door is open and they are freed. And then what happens? They don't leave. Why? Because of the prison guard, he ends up almost killing himself because he's afraid they're going to escape. And then they share the gospel with that guy. He ends up getting saved. Many people think that's the person that started the church in Philippi. 
Regardless of that, we see Paul and Silas, they're worshiping the Lord for who he is because he's worthy, not because they think he's going to do something specific. Now, we know God's good and he does do a lot of good things for us, but that can't be our reason for our worship. Our motivation behind our worship for the Lord, yes, has to be our love for him, but simply put, It has to be because we're called to worship. We've been created to worship. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 12, verse one, I beseech you. That means like I'm begging you. I'm pleading you, pleading with you. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of service or in other translations, your reasonable act of worship. We've been called to worship. We were created to worship. And not only were we created to worship and called to worship, He chose us to worship. Point number three, praise Him because He chose you to. Praise Him because He chose you to. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation. This is for all of us. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He chose us, not just us as a group, us as individuals. He's chosen each and every one of us to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into this marvelous light. See, he could have chose somebody else. It's not like he chose us because like we got a lot to offer, right? God chose what? The foolish, the weak, the base. He didn't choose us because we were great. He chose us because, well, we needed him. Nevertheless, he chose us to praise him. See, it says in John chapter 15 that Jesus didn't only choose us to praise him, but he chose us to bear fruit. John chapter 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, meaning you wouldn't have chosen me if I didn't choose you already, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. He says, I chose you that you might bear fruit. Now, there's a lot of different fruit in the Bible, and we'll talk about it in in a couple weeks when we get into the parable of the fig tree. But one section of Scripture that discusses, discusses the fruit of praise specifically is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. I'll read it for you. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. He chose us to bear fruit. He chose us to praise him. Praising him is a form of bearing fruit. It's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. Do we sacrifice that time in our everyday lives to praise him? It could be a giving of thanks. It could be worship. But do we do that? Now, I'm not talking about just coming on on Sunday or Wednesday and doing the worship service thing. I'm talking about 
spiritual disciplines. Like this is something that we do. Like we worship the Lord throughout the day, every day, literally singing songs to him. That might sound ridiculous to you, but we're called to do it. We're called to sing out to him. We're called to praise him. Sometimes we can think of this as like this awkward thing. I remember when I first got saved, like worship was a weird thing to me. And then, and then over time, the Lord changed my heart and I got it and I had to like get into it. And like, I'm not a very emotional person, but worship gets me emotional. Uh, that's why I stand in the back during worship so you don't see me crying my eyes out most of the time. Now, in all sincerity though, the Lord, He pierces our hearts, He moves our hearts through worship. Worship is more for us than it is for Him. He's given us a chance. He's given us an opportunity. You get to worship me. I chose you to worship me. I could have chose someone else, but I chose you. See, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, he says this. In Luke chapter 19, I'll read it for you, verse 40. He says, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. He chose us to worship him. If we don't worship him, we'll choose someone else. And he says this, if my people won't worship me, my creation will worship me. The stones will even cry out because the stones, they recognize the authority of their master. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For some, we get to see that, we get to recognize that early in our lives and we're able to worship the Lord with our lives and spend eternity with him. But this is what he's saying, all creation. Meaning even those that are condemned, one way or another, people are going to recognize the Lord's kingship. They're going to recognize that he truly is God, that he is sovereign, that he is all powerful. He says, if you don't choose to worship me, the rocks are going to cry out. Something's going to worship Jesus for who he is. If it's not us, it will be something else. We have to see it as a privilege. He chose us for this specifically. Matthew chapter 21 Picking it back up. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10 says, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? See, the city, they were moved. They were moved with emotion at the idea of the Messiah. They were moved emotionally with their preconceived notions of who they thought Jesus would be. But they're moved in emotion and they're not moved by truth. Point number four, be moved by his truth, not your emotion. Be moved by his truth, not your emotion. I'm definitely not saying that emotions are bad. They're not bad. But the truth that's revealed in scripture is that our emotions can be misleading. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You know, we don't even know what's in our hearts, the stuff that comes out of us. We don't even always know the root of why that thing's in there. Some deep hidden thing, some dark spot in our heart that we got to figure out with the Lord, regardless of the case. The point is that our emotions can deceive us. Our emotions can mislead us. And again, emotions aren't bad, but when we come to a place with, when, when, when our emotions conflict with the truth of scripture, there's something wrong and it's not the truth of scripture. It's our emotions. Yes, when our emotions line up with Scripture, praise God. But ultimately, we need to be moved by, we need to be led by His truth and not our emotions. See, they're moved by with emotion because they think 
that he's someone who he isn't. Yes, they're right that he's a king. Yes, they're right that he's the Messiah, but they don't know what kind of king he actually is. If they knew the truth of Scripture, they would have recognized the Messiah. If they knew everything that was said about his first coming, the son of sorrows. You look at Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and all these different scriptures that talk about Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. They would have gotten it. It would have clicked. But they're moved with this idea of what they think is going to happen, who they think he is. But they're not moved by the truth. The truth isn't guiding them. See, we can fall into this too. We can worship an idea instead of worshiping God. We can worship who we think God is, but it may not be who he actually is. Sometimes we can create God in our image instead of recognize that he created us in his image. And we can worship this God that we created in our own mind and and not the God that actually created us. And we can have these false expectations and we can think that he's something that he's not. How does that happen? When we get away from the truth, when we get away from the word of God that reveals the truth of who Jesus Christ actually is, when we start just coming up with, oh, this is how I think God is. God's like this or God's like this. Does it line up with scripture? Because if it doesn't line up with scripture, either you're worshiping a false God or you're worshiping a lesser God, a demonic God. But it's not the God that created you. See, these people, once again, They're focused on the idea of who they think Jesus is, but it's not the Messiah that's been revealed through the scriptures. They're being misled because they're being led by their emotions. Though these people are being moved by their emotions, Jesus isn't being moved by them. What do I mean? Jesus isn't moved by their worship, by their praise, or by their ridicule. These same people, many of them, the ones that are praising him, Hosanna, Hosanna, deliver us, save us, King, the son of David, King, Messiah, all these different things, those same people are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And he's not moved by either of their responses. He's not moved by their worship. He's not moved by their ridicule and their rejection. He's moved by one thing and one thing alone obedience to his father he's doing all of this out of sheer obedience regardless of what this person says about me or this person says about me regardless of what the world thinks whether they praise me or ridicule me i am focused on doing what my god has told me to do that's what the lord's response was in isaiah chapter 50 verse 7 it says this speaking of this time when jesus would enter into jerusalem it says he set his face like a flint What does that mean? He didn't look to the right or the left. He was focused. He was determined. He had one goal in mind, and that was obedience to the Father, knowing that it was going to cost him. Remember what it said. He knew it was going to happen. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he would be condemned to death. He knew he'd be scorched. He knew he would be crucified. Despite knowing all of that, he set his face like a flint. He wasn't distracted. He was simply motivated by being obedient to his Father. In fact, it says in Philippians chapter 2 that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Think about that. Knowing that your obedience would lead to your suffering, knowing that your obedience would lead to your death, would you still be obedient? Jesus, that's what he was focused on. I know it's going to happen to me, but I'm determined to obey my Father. 
He wasn't moved by the people. He wasn't even moved by his own emotion. He was moved by the direction his father had given him. He was moved by truth. Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Picking up this character quality of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, he's heading to Jerusalem, getting ready to, they're going to have a field day with him. Then he's going to go to Rome. He knows what awaits him, and yet he says, none of these things move me. I'm setting my face like a flint, just like I saw my Lord do. I'm going to be obedient regardless of the cost. I'm not going to be moved by my emotion. I'm not going to be moved by other people's responses. I'm going to be moved by his word. I'm going to be moved by his truth. I'm going to be moved by his direction. That was his mentality because he learned that from the Lord Jesus. Do we have that same mentality? Can we say that none of these things move me? I'm determined to do whatever my father tells me to do in the good times and the bad times, through trials, through obstacles, through tribulations, through blessings, whatever the case may be, I'm focused. I'm determined to do what he's asked me to do. That was the Lord's mindset. That's what he was set out to do. In Matthew chapter 21, that's where we'll close. Verse 11. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This is what the multitude say. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus wasn't from Nazareth, right? He lived there, but he's from where? Bethlehem, right? They, they, they refer to him as a prophet. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. See, the people still didn't know who Jesus was. They had an idea. They had a concept, but they were off. See, Jesus, he had revealed himself to them time and time again. He wasn't like hiding who he was. He was trying to reveal it to them. But they still didn't get it. They still didn't see it. So they worship him and they praise him for who they think he is, what they think he's going to do. But they're off. They're wrong. So when he doesn't do that, when he doesn't reveal himself in the way that they thought, they're not going to worship him anymore. They're going to walk away from him. They're going to betray him. See, just as Jesus revealed himself to these people time and time again, the Lord, he reveals himself to us time and time again. He wants us to know who he is so that we're not misled, that we don't have false expectations, that we don't have ulterior motives, that we know who we're worshiping. He's not hiding it from us. He reveals it to us. He says, you want to know me? Come and find out. Seek me and you'll find me. I'm not hiding myself from you to the point that you can't find me. Yes, it's going to require effort. Yes, it's going to require energy. But I want to know, I want you to know who you're worshiping so that we might be able to worship in spirit and in truth. That we're not worshiping a, a God that we created in our, in our minds, but the God that actually created us. Not for what we think we're going to get from him. Not for the certain response or the answer that we think he's going to give us. But simply for the sheer fact that he's worthy to be worshipped, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, and that he chose us to. This is what he's chosen us for. Those reasons are enough to praise him, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Please pray with me. Lord, uh, God, we thank you for 
uh, the truth that you reveal to us about you. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't have um, these false ideas or false beliefs about who you are, God, that, that, we would, that we would seek you, we would find you, we would understand who, we, who you are. Lord, we know that with our finite minds, we can't completely comprehend, but I pray that with the ability that we have to comprehend, you would uh, allow us to comprehend, that we would understand, God, and we wouldn't seek you for what we're going to gain. We would seek you, seek you for who you are, what you've done already, not what you're going to do, but what you've already done for each of us and our lives. As Paul said, your grace is sufficient. I pray that we could really take that to heart, believe that, Lord, and worship you for the fact that you are worthy to be worshiped. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.